Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic here with Aaron Cameron. We've made now an, uh, an annual event out of hosting Peter Altabelli on after, after the forums. And we just had the biggest one, the Toronto Real Estate Forum, last week. So he's here with us in office to talk about our top five key takeaways from the event. For anybody who's not familiar with Peter, he has been on this podcast. I mean, I'm, I think I'm running out of fingers, but I was trying to count them, all of it or most of it around forum recaps. But he's back again in person with us. He is a VP at Yardy Canada. Peter, welcome back. Thanks so much, Adam. Appreciate you coming back. It's been, uh, I think, uh, maybe six months or maybe a year since the last time we did one of these. Yeah, it's nice to do it in person too. Yeah, and finally we can do it in person. We don't have to, Adam and I are texting each other like, you going to ask the question next? So now yeah. I can actually, don't have to worry about the delay on, on Zoom. Uh, being together is way better. Way better. Way better. Way better. And for anybody that wants Peter's story, the Yardy story, his very first appearance on the podcast, we did a deep dive on both. And it actually is interesting and a great success story. We'll put a link in the show notes back to that uh, first episode. And I encourage anybody to go listen to it. We are going to jump, uh, I think. Into Wait, the before we go there, we should just okay, so, for, so that people don't have to go and just listen. You already in an elevator pitch, like just so that yeah. if there is anybody out there that's, that's unfamiliar. That's not familiar with us. Yeah. So Yardy, Yardy Canada is a subsidiary of Yardy Systems out of the United States, is which where our head office is. And we're a real estate technology company. We've been around for about 40 years. We provide both ERP financial solutions, operational solutions, maintenance solutions, asset management solutions, and our investment management and debt solutions to the real estate industry. And basically, if you own a substantial amount of real estate in Canada, you're already a client. Yeah, the, yes. Yeah, the market share is significant in Canada. I think in the multifamily space, we're north of 85% now. In the commercial space, we're north of 65% market share. And then we have subsidiaries like condominium management is very strong. Senior housing is also very strong and a variety of other types of real estate. And then at the investment level, a lot of the larger pension funds and private equity firms use our software to manage their investments in real estate. So if you haven't heard of Yardy, now you know. Now you have. Thanks, 85% uh, of market share apartments. Really? Only 85%? We're, 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 with that? we're, we're trying <laughs> yeah. to grow it. We're still trying yeah, to grow all right. it. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. We'll do a classic Dave Letterman style countdown. Or no, actually, we're going inverse. We're going to start with number one. We're going to start right with the headline item. The Canadian economy. I'm sure that nobody is shocked to hear that the Canadian economy dominated the conversation in virtually every panel at uh, the Real Estate Forum. Rising inflation, interest rates, and government debt. You know, storm clouds might be on the horizon. Everybody's got an opinion. Well, we want to hear uh, Peter's. You know, Adam, it's the whole session was like, look at 2022 and then 2023, except it all focused on 2023, right? So, and then I don't blame them by why look back when you can look in the future. In our what we're looking at is going to be a bumpy ride in 2023. Yeah, we're headed into a recession. I think that's obvious and it's going to be across North America, across Europe and even beyond. I think the the government, Bank of Canada has to get inflation in check and they're going to do whatever it takes to do that. And that's going to slow things down, slow the economy down. As it relates to real estate and our sectors that we work in, I think it's going to vary. I think it, you're going to see a lot of hold tight in the commercial space but I do see in the multifamily space much more activity continuing because the buildings are full, vacancy rates are, are below norms, and are going to continue that way because of immigration and other factors and lack of supply over the next number of years. So I think depending on where you are, you're going to see the recession either less or more depending on what markets you work in and what part of the real estate you work in. 
as it relates to the economy in, in, in total, obviously it's going to cool off Europe, uh, US demands are going to slow. Bank of Canada, as you know, today, just before we got here, they raised the rates to 4.25%. And so I think you're going to see those start to take effect probably sometime in 2023. The guess is when do we hit the recession? Is it going to be first quarter, second quarter? I don't know if it matters so much. It's going to be between now and June of next year. And then I think we have to ride that out well into 2024. Well, what's the good news? <laughs> yeah, but 2025 is coming in yeah, two years. Is coming. But you know, <laughs> we talk about this in terms of uh, the bad news and it's all doom and gloom because we're into a recession. But I remember going back, you know, into 2008, 2009, 2010, when everybody thought everything was collapsing. And I don't think we're going to be anywhere near that. This is just another trend. I think for most of us who've worked for a very long time have seen these ups and downs and you just go with it and you just plan accordingly, position your businesses, position what you do. And you act accordingly based on what you, ha- what you have to deal with today and in the ensuing weeks and months to come. And you just move forward. I think the idea is that commercial real estate will fare better than the single family market. Because a lot of the doom and gloom headlines you see outside of our universe is uh, single family is likely going to get hit pretty badly. I've heard reasons from a lot of bright people on why commercial will, will fare better. Not excel, but fare better. Yeah, well, I think housing is going to slow down for obvious reasons. I think, you know, when you have seven rate hikes in, you know, nine, ten, under a year, people are going to get skittish. The mortgages have gone up for everyone who's on a variable rate. A lot of people do take variable rates because the rates were so attractive. And it's going to cost them a lot more to keep their homes month after month until these rates start to come down. And that's not going to be probably for another 12 plus months. So the single family home market, I think, is going to slow. Any real estate agents selling that type of asset class, I think, is going to be able to take either longer vacations or or have to work twice as hard for a little bit less or a lot less. Maybe yeah. staycations, you know. Not yeah. Staycations. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of capital in the system still, right? There I think is. that's the reality. So it's this is not a liquidity crisis. No, it's not what it was 10, 12 years ago. I think that this is, there's lots of capital, but I think you can get people holding off and waiting. I think single family home sales will continue, but just at a much slower rate, which means you're going to have to work harder to, to make the dollars that were easier to make over the last number of years. But it will still continue. Where the two communities connect, being single family and commercial, is just in the condo market, mm-hmm. where we still haven't seen a ton of challenges. There's certainly not nearly as many launches. There aren't nearly as many starts. But the investor, right? 50% of condo buyers are investors, and they seem to also be well-capitalized and still being able to, to manage their holdings. And there's going to be some damage. Like, you can't inevitably. It's only been... Six months in, so I think you know. Let's have this conversation in another twelve months, but I think there's going to be some damage, but not to the extent that you might read in the headlines. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Aaron, to follow up on your liquidity comment, if you're an office or land, are you in a liquidity Ooh, crisis? Yeah, well, that's a little bit different, right? Yeah, but, I would think office and land is much different than than single family purchases of condos or homes, and I think that uh, more strategically, you're going to see things change there. The, the difference, though, I would say is that the owners of office are institutional for the most part, predominantly, yep. and therefore likely way more, way stronger balance sheet. So able to withhold or withstand the challenges and weather it and figure out what the out- outcome looks like. We can talk about office at length, but who knows where we're going to be in two, three, five years in office. The land, I though, I, I'm not sure quite as institutional. Like I think there are probably some landholders that were speculative that don't have the strength and the balance sheet that probably you might see some some damage there. Again, to be to be determined. Yeah, I think it's to be determined. And I, I, and obviously, you are going to see some damage. Not everyone's in the same position. 
And to me, that's kind of normal course of business, although you don't want to frame it that way. There are people that are going to take a chance that can't hold off. They can't, they can't manage through a recession. They're looking for faster returns. You know, so be it. Their strategy is, needs to change and then they need to look at 2023 into 2024 much differently. And if they can't make those changes and they can't do it quick enough, then they're going to probably have to liquidate. Aaron, you mentioned we could speak about office at length. I think you were foreshadowing number two because that's exactly what we're about to do. Oh, is that number two? I didn't know that. The future of workplace, again, talked about extensively in a a lot of different sessions. You know, everybody's got an opinion on where we're headed. I think that Aaron and I both agree. Our, Our big takeaway, this was actually not from a panel. Aaron and I were lucky enough to be recording podcasts at the forum. Paul Morissuti came on. Arguably one of the most qualified chairman, guys. chairman, now chairman of CBRE. Yeah. A specialist in valuation. So we asked him the question because he's got the you know credentials, you know, not just the uh, just the opinions. And his comment was way too early to tell. We'll have clarity in this in five years. I think it was like, who knows, yeah. right? Like ultimately. You know, and I think I think he's yeah, absolutely correct. I think most companies are going through the same gyrations. We just haven't all talked to each other. I know our organization's got 40 offices around the world, 45 offices around the world. And what do you do with all this space? And what do you do with all your employees? And I think we're all faced the same question. And I think we're going to all answer it slightly differently. But the outcome of what's occurred is out of the pandemic, there's been a shift. And is this shift permanent? And if it's permanent, for how many years is it permanent? So to me, we look at it remote versus hybrid versus in office. I know from our organization, we're going to go a hybrid mode and we're going to be hybrid mode for the foreseeable future. And there's no discussion on when that's going to change. Uh, the job market's not balanced. And until that balances where there are you know, more jobs than there are people, there is a risk, especially in the technology sector, of losing your employees. So you have to be flexible and you have to be open. And I think in terms of the hybrid and the work environment and commercial real estate as in terms of office space, We're going to have to reinvent ourselves. Companies, tenants have to reinvent themselves on how they use their space and create an environment that people want to come back to work for. Not because you're having pizza every Tuesday and lunch is on the company. I don't think that's going to attract people. Although that's nice. Although it is nice. I don't think it's going to... I don't think think it's going to have its appeal over time. It's going to wear off in terms of its its appeal. It's such an interesting conversation, right? Because you said like the tenants have to figure out what their use is. And then once we've kind of settled on some sort of average expectation of office space. Like I mean, you didn't mention four day work weeks, which I think when it first started, this news was seemed like a, you know, funny title for a funny headline that, you know, some news people were picking up. Now you're starting to see all these studies where major institutions, global institutions are saying, yeah, no, it actually works. And I'm not sure that's legitimate or not, but it seems like be picking up steam. You're hearing more about it. I'm of a vintage that if you weren't working five or six days in a week, there was something wrong, right? So now we're talking about four day work weeks for a lot of us in that same year or class of our vintage class in terms of our age and how long we worked, I think that one is going to be a tougher pill to swallow in terms of accepting it, understanding it, and really looking at it and saying, this is what the workforce wants and needs, and you have to modify your thinking and change it and adopt. And adopt. And, and I think so the hybrid workforce and all this other stuff, the capabilities of work from home, four-day work week, all these headwinds for tenants to figure out what their, for occupiers of space to figure out what their needs are for, from the office is going to take a long time. 
right? Like it's like, you know, First National is the best example. We are having these conversations. We're going through it. And it's not monoline decisions because the commercial use of the space versus the single family use. We have single family mortgages and commercial mortgages at First National, which is simple because it's just two lines of business. Mm -hmm. But they both have different needs and demands of office space. We just signed our lease in this brand new, beautiful building we're sitting in at 16 New York. Pre-COVID. It's a beautiful office. So I I, I don't even know if it's a five-year or 10-year lease, but we're only a couple of years into either of those. So any decision we make isn't going to get really get impacted in the market's space for at least three to seven years. And so and we're just one sort of micro example of the whole community. So it is a five to seven year time frame for this to kind of work itself out for us to have any sense of what net rents should be or what office should be valued at or whatever it is. Yeah, right? Our companies are going to go for the same amount of space or for less space and right. remodel differently and create a different work environment. Right. And I think I was in Montreal yesterday at a client and they completely remodeled their office space. Now, they're a significant pension fund and pension funds have a tendency to be able to do that, where other smaller companies not necessarily can, but have done an absolutely incredible job at it. And it's inviting. It brings people back because it's inviting. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think you're also going to see more tenants on a lease negotiation ask a simple question to the owner. What are you going to do for my employees? Mm. And, I, and that conversation would never have had. When we were leasing our space, and I have leased space across Canada for Yardi, that we never asked that question. What are you going to do for us? Security? Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Good. That's all I need. Yeah, yeah. As long as you know, they're going to say lights, air conditioning, heat, and elevators. And we're all good. Plus security, we're all good. That conversation is going to be different. What amenities? What are you putting in the property? How are we going to keep and attract and, and want our employees want to come here, not just to work, but also to do other things like socialize and have other amenities that they can use while yeah. they're here. We had the fortune of interviewing Scott Hutchison, future podcast episode to look out for from Aspen Properties and some of the stuff that they're putting in their office. And they got ahead of this. They, they saw this coming. Well, it's Alberta. They yeah, were already in a tough They're already in a tough They, so they had they to be were. creative and, and think outside the box and adapt. And, and so they call it sort of his, he called it sort of the play environment. You know, the basketball courts in the foyer, you know, shared office areas, dog runs, you know. You could use any Aspen Properties office. Yeah, you know, they're full, their full floors that are gyms. Like, just like as a landlord, they're offering a ton of amenities just to any tenant, right? Like, it's not like a, I don't think it was a pay for. Maybe it is, but it, he didn't seem to indicate. It was just part of your rent. Like, you get yeah. all of this stuff if you come here. And, and outperforming a, the market. And of course, he's outperforming the market from an occupancy perspective and from a net rent perspective. Yeah, there's someone who's creative. Yeah. All right, who looked at a pro- problem and came up with a, an incredible solution and is going to attract the right tenants to his building and fill. Yeah, and he was saying like, they've got accountants, they've got accountant firms, they've got tech firms, they've got everybody. It's not just this one particular niche. It's... They all want it. We all want it. Humans would like that. Everybody right? wants it. <laughs> so. Number three, it's where is the investment market heading given the change in the cost of capital? Which I think I read that as a, as a cap rate question. And then uh, Aaron will answer this one. He won't be wrong. What is the direction of bond yields? So when I looked at this question, guys, by the way, I thought, let's throw this one in for the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> this goes to your expertise. Yeah, I mean, we uh, spent a lot of time thinking about it. You know, that's for sure. I don't know how, how often we're right. I mean, the, the cap rate aspect of that is pretty funny. You know, the, like we knew what cap rates were back in February. Cost of capital, you know, goes up astronomically. And there's arguments out there that cap rates haven't moved. There's arguments that, you know, could be as much as 100 basis points. I think the most common opinion is that they have moved 25 to 50. 
But then in some asset classes, industrial apartment, you're still seeing rising rent. So maybe values aren't off, even if cap rates are up and no transactions. That's the other thing too. So you have right. all of these, uh, these views on the matter, but then you don't have the real uh, litmus test, which would be a decent volume of transactions in order to measure it against. I would say that from transactions we saw heading into the interest rate hike, I mean, maybe we're off 25 basis points. You know, if you judge it by the haircuts people were looking for during that time period. Now, of course, interest rates have been up for a while. So you don't really see haircuts on loans anymore to give a, a very, or give a, give an indicator there. So it's, it's an interesting one. And, you know, much like Paul Morissuti said about office, you know, by the time we get into well, the next year, we'll maybe look back and have a handle on where we were cap rate wise right now. But it's a bit of a uh, murky uh, crystal ball at the moment. Last week, I was in New York and I heard a, a CBRE economist speak and they were talking about New York office properties, obviously, and, and what's happening there and the slowdown in terms of what's the activity and the number of transactions and what you would price these properties out at. And he said, there's a spot rate, which is what the listing rate is and what people want to think the building's worth. But he said, the reality behind it is simply this. If you have a willing buyer and you have a willing seller and they come together, that's the market. And until that starts to happen more often, then you'll see real estate values change. And he was speaking more specifically in New York in terms of his comments. I mean, I think that's stable stakes. That's table stakes. That happens anywhere. It's, it's everywhere you do real estate. But they were looking at that wait and see to see these transactions occur to really stabilize the market, regardless of whatever the asking rate is or the listed rate of the real estate is. They're still thinking that that's not necessarily going to be the actual value. It's hard to put a value on it. It's hard to look at what you should be doing, how you should be doing it when there's not enough of these transactions occurring. And everybody we speak to, or a lot of them anyway, are, well, you know, I'm sidelined for now unless I saw a real deal come along. It's like, well, if you don't have clarity where the market is, how do you know that's a below market and, deal? And that was, yeah, that yeah. was the point. Yeah. Uh, and I terms know. have become much more uh, buyer friendly, obviously, the non, uh, non-monetary terms. Yeah, there's a 50-50 chance that bond yields go up or down. <laughs> yeah, it's a good prediction. So that's that's my prediction. That's your bond yield prediction, yeah. up or down? 50-50 chance. <laughs> that's very strong. I think that's as that's as you can that's bank as, on that. That's, that's, that's as that's as committal as I'll get. I will make a comment on the cap rate valuation side, which I think is just really interesting. Is that you are? It really depends on who you talk to and what their motivations are. Really, really (laughs) massages the answer that you'll get. Yeah, (laughs) trying to take away my lender hat, which would say everything's got to be 150 basis points wider than all in coupons. It's got to be higher. The cap rate has to be higher than the interest rate. So that's well, well, it's not in some cases. Though industrial is not, but but that's all year two, year two income. But that's my point. Is that I, I just I don't think there's a lot of people with the appetite to buy into something that you're dependent on future revenue growth to skate on side to a positive yield. Like I just, I feel like even in the apartment space, unless it's a really specific asset, you're taking on a ton of risk that there's no regulatory changes or, you know, and those rents are sticky. Like it's not a 20% roll rate. It's a 5% roll rate. So you're going to take four years taking on that, that regulatory risk and maybe roll the rents to get to a, a positive yield. It just seems un, few people out there are willing to take that risk, which means therefore, on average, the cap rates have gone up. You know, in apartments, let alone all the other asset classes that maybe don't have the same strength and fundamentals. Well, one thing worth pointing out too on uh, cap rates, 
is you know, we track the you know, bond yields versus cap rates gap because that's how you're influencing your positive leverage to what degree. So it's really worth tracking if you're investing and borrowing to do so. And heading into 2020, interest rates plummeted. Cap rates didn't really move all that much. It came down a little bit, but it gapped out to the widest it had been in 10 years. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm going by memory here. You had the most positive leverage you'd had the previous 10 years, all through 2020 and 2021. So when interest rates starts going up again, there was a fair bit of slack in the system to begin with, just to get back to what would people would accept as a normal or historical or average positive leverage on a property. It's not a one-to-one ratio when you were already gapped out so wide in terms of uh, cap rates and uh, bond yields slash interest rates. Yeah, no, no. Yields are up, whatever it is, 250 basis points, depending on the day. Cap rates aren't up that high. But it still has to be positive. This is my point. <laughs> Just that you can't, you can't buy at a 4% interest rate and you can't have a 3.5% cap rate on your purchase. Well, shouldn't is the word you're looking for. Yeah. Because people clearly yeah, are. still doing it. <laughs> yeah. I, it depends on who you ask. But I think the, the vast majority, like you lined up 100 commercial real estate people, they'd all say, no, that, that doesn't make sense. Right. So The next number, number four, I think we're at right now, is ESG at a crossroads. There's, there's been a spike in greater corporate priority impact investing and sustainable finance. Aaron and I have covered this topic a fair bit. Well, I mean, for a number of years now, but the big takeaway from this conference, this is a shift from you know years prior, is that the money starting to back up the ESG concept. That what's going to happen here in Canada is probably the same trajectory as Europe is just there, of course, you know, five, six, seven years ahead of us. It's no longer nice to have. It's no longer just polishing up your corporate image like there's actual real tangible financial implications of how invested you are into an ESG as part of your platform. And that's going to be a game changer. On, a, on another podcast, we spoke about this. The monetary ship would likely be the second biggest needle mover for ESG, number one being regulatory change, because that's the, you know, the heavy-handed way of doing it. But this will see uh, an acceleration of ESG adoption like nothing else from previous years when it was largely awareness and uh, brand brand uh, shining. Yeah. Moving forward for the next, I don't know, three to five years, I think you're going to see this as being one of the hottest topics for commercial real estate is ESG. There's going to be investors that are going to want to see your ESG plan prior to investing in your organization. You're going to see companies making this top priority in terms of how they manage it, how they contribute to it, and how they transform their companies. I also think you may see a generation of younger individuals coming into the workforce that want to know that the company they're coming into has a strong ESG direction. They want to know what they're doing environmentally. They want to know what kind of company they're coming into, not just for corporate culture, but the S is going to be so much more important for the younger generation than let's say it was for an older generation moving in. And I think that those things will motivate younger employees to join companies and will be part of the decision-making when they're looking for jobs. It's not going to be just investors, here's our ESG policies, this is what we're doing. I think that that is going to be throughout your organization. It has to be embedded in your organization from all levels, from the investors to management to employee status, and everyone's going to have to participate in this moving forward. On the governance level, it's a little bit tougher, right? On the governance level, you're looking at it more from a corporate perspective and from an investor's perspective, but still, it's going to be there. And I don't think every employee is going to care about every aspect of ESG, but the first two, the E and the S, I think your employees are going to be caring about I think that market and investors are going to care about all three of those. And I think it's going to become a little bit more ethical moving forward. And I think we do have to catch up to Europe, but I think we're on our way. 
And more and more of the C-suite that I've talked to over the last several months, that's one of their top priorities. 2022, 2023, they're moving forward in a big way. Yeah, I agree. We've talked about this at length and it's starting to become actually more clear for me as we've gone through this over the last couple of years that the fact that we work in commercial real estate and real estate in general, you know, we house Canadians or we, we house enterprise, like we do have the ability to have substantial, meaningful impact on the a general ESG framework. I mean, I'm almost starting to get sick of ESG in the sense that it becomes, I don't know how you, how you put this, if this makes sense, but you say it so many times it loses all meaning, right? And so I you almost have to stop saying ESG. It was John Love, we interviewed John Love during the Real Estate Forum a couple weeks ago. And he was saying, it's not ESG. I can't remember exactly what he was saying. Oh, it was, I won't even go in there. You can listen to the episode, you can hear it. But (laughs) good teaser. Yeah. (laughs) They, King Set was using things like, no, no, we're focused on carbon neutrality. We're focused on driving affordability. We're focused on these these things that are meaningful to us. They happen to be under this ESG banner, but we're not talking about ESG. We're talking about these specific things that are meaningful to us. And that when he was talking like, yeah, that, that's been my challenge, I think, with part of this is this ESG. Great. That's sort of esoteric concept. No, no, no. Let's, let's break it down to what you actually mean. It means contributing to charitable organizations. It means, you know, embracing, you know, all these different things. I, mean, I can't I, I go well, on you and on. You wanted the right? hotel guests to understand when they walk in what a carbon zero building is and everybody kind of gets that. Right. That was part of the... Uh, yeah, because talking about converting... Listen to the episode, converting the Royal York Hotel to being carbon neutral and what that means, right? Right. And so, I think for those who have large real estate assets, they're learning or know how to do it. And they're going to drive their assets to be as carbon neutral as they can. And not every property is going to be the same, right? And the capitalization, what it takes to do this, not everyone has the same abilities. But I also agree with you. It's also what you do as an organization. Right? It's not just, you're right, it's the three letters and, and all the speak around it. What's your company doing? And the example I would give you is that our organization, we're private. So our ESG, what we do is it doesn't, the market doesn't know about it. We don't typically advertise about it. Yet on a couple of notes, as it relates to the environment, we just provided funding, a gap funding to purchase Boreal Wildlands up in Northern Ontario. That piece of property is two times the size of the city of Toronto. Wow. And we provided funding to the Natural Conservancy of Canada to procure that land, to keep it in its natural form in perpetuity. I was going to say, are they building condos on it? What's the... <laughs> yeah. So there's to be building nothing on it forever. It's just to be bought. But there is going to be a plan in terms of a carbon plan and going beyond carbon. It's not just how much carbon it will take in and neutralize, but it's also a plan on what you can do with that even more because that allows Ontario to breathe. Mm-hmm. It allows the world to breathe. It's a big piece of allowing the world to breathe. And so it's these things that you do in addition to your charitable contributions as an organization, which really goes to the S piece, but it's the actions that companies take. And I think John is correct. It's it's all those little actions you take in addition to making sure your property is carbon neutral, but it's the other. Yeah, I'm of the opinion, I'm just going to stop saying ESG and just start referring to it as, you know, I don't know yet. I have to figure that out, but I'm tired (laughs) of ESG. (laughs) 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 Okay. Anyway, agree. We're all on the same page. It's coming. Can't avoid it now. Number five is thought leadership in the C-suite. What strategies and CEOs are undertaking for 2023? John Love, of course, being a super high-profile CEO in the uh, real estate space. So it's always interesting to hear and see the leaders speak in, the, in, in, in the, our industry, in the real estate industry. A lot of them have incredible insights. They're well-read, they're well-learned, they're well-experienced. And 
you want to be able to just sit in those sessions, at least take something back with you so you can take it to your own organization, change the way you think, change what you're doing. And I thought overall, the sessions that they, they speak on, and I've seen a number of them over the years, are always some of the most impressive to go to. Really some of the most impressive to see, which is those last sessions where they get everyone oh, the just sitting. closing panel, yeah. Yeah, that closing panel. I find it's the very opening and the very closing is what really attracts everyone. And in <laughs> yeah. between is all very, very good. But they kind of put the best at the beginning and the end. And those closing panels are incredibly insightful in terms of what they're thinking and where they're going and, and what you can take back to your own organization. I think that there's a lot to come out of the pandemic. I think that they've seen this. There's a lot of lessons learned. I think that they all recognize that there's a change now to the way people want to live and work and play and what a company is going to do and how it's going to achieve its goals. That particular session spoke to that or spoke to some of that in the sense of where these guys are going. Some of the more interesting takeaways that I saw from the C-suite, John Love, long retail, long office. He's a contrarian investor. Michael Cooper, big on impact investing. And I'm, gonna, I'm missing, I'm going to forget one of the names, but some people are scaling back activities, not cutting off development pipelines, but just reducing plans into something more manageable, tolerate more risk. Yeah, we're seeing that now too in the commercial space. Reducing plans is a good way of saying it. A lot of them are just saying any ancillary spending is just going to be on hold for the first six months. Yeah, right? they're not and, stopping though. They're not stopping. It's, yeah, they're not stopping, but yeah. they're looking at when they're going to spend it. And are they going to spend it at the beginning of the year or towards the back half of the year? And we're starting to see some of that shift into the, to the latter part of 2023, not the front end of 2023. And I mean, I think that's conservative. That's prudent for many organizations. And it gives companies the time to take a second look at what's going on and reevaluate as the economy moves in 2023. Well, everybody's talking about Q3, right? Is that the... Yeah. Q3 2023 <laughs> yeah. is what I heard over and over again. Everybody put your party hat back on because... Uh, it's funny, right? Because again, we talked about this. It's not a liquidity crisis. Everybody's got money. But they're all risk off because they just the uncertainty is just driving you know obviously the decisions not to get involved because there's just too much uncertainty to, to make the investment. The Q3 2023 strategy is interesting. I find this because that was the consensus, not just like a couple people. It wasn't like half are saying Q4, half are saying everyone. Q3, everyone, which I find really interesting. So everybody's sitting on these big piles of cash, and then all of a sudden, what you know. July 1st, it's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and then what's going to happen, right? You're going to all of a sudden have 20 bidders for properties that would have had three bidders the month before. Like, clearly that's not going to occur. The flood back in, how the whole thing starts, like, it'd be, it's just going to be really fascinating just what the ramp up looks like as the new cycle starts. I mean, I, presumably, if you ask my opinion, Q3 2023, we're going to be in a recession, mild, maybe. Employment still rising. Inflation hasn't abated at all. You know, the, the central bank's still determining whether they're going to rise or lower interest rates. So there's still going to be enough uncertainty in the market that nobody does anything in Q3 2023. <laughs> and then it all of a sudden it'll be Q1 2024 becomes the new, the new moniker. But at some point, there's going to be a, a point where everybody goes, okay, now it's time to step back in. I'm going to find that very interesting because it's just going to be billions and billions and billions of pent-up capital looking to get out, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be all... It'll be a roller coaster. It'll be a ride. But I think Q3 is going to be too soon. I still think that everyone's waiting for it. But I, I would assume if we are talking this time next year, December of 2023, I think you're looking at Q1 2024 yeah. before that roller coaster starts. My hope is, though, that these same companies that have this pent up capital start looking internally at their organizations, optimize what they do, get better at they, what they do. And in other words, take this little bit of a slowdown 
where they're not necessarily buying and they're not in the transaction market and refocus on the organizations and get their organizations optimal. Focus on their ESG strategies. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> see, see what I did there? See what I did there? <laughs> so this is something I think that they can look at. And I think if they take 2023 and take that second sober look and make sure they're operationally very efficient, make sure their people are aligned, are aligned with their goals. So when this market opens up, there's nothing delaying them to move it forward. And when they do move forward, they do it. There'll be no stress on the company. I'm not going to end here. We've finished the top five and we're running out of time. Peter's got to catch a plane. So we really are literally running yeah. out of time. And so I'm going to put this negative spin at him. And then you as the optimist, you're going to have to figure out how to end positively. But sure. one of the themes, we didn't really totally capture it, I think, through this conversation. But there was a lot of concern, ultimately, whether it was at the C-suite level or anybody else that I talked to, right? Where you know We've got 500,000 new immigrants coming. We've got Clearly not a lot of the supply coming online. Talking about housing right now, rents are already at their sort of their highest ever. There's an affordability crunch coming. Office is really challenged. There's the, you know, one of the people we talked to was talking about is the industrial party over. Like at what point can rents no longer be sustainable? The availability of land. Like there's a whole whack of really challenging headwinds that our community is facing on top of the fact that it sounds like we're a year away from anything actually occurring. So it is a very interesting time right now. I think it's a very challenging time for most of us in our community. And it is probably the best opportunity to learn right now. And and like I think you, you said it right, Peter. There's a lot of internal reflection. There's a period now of reflection of what can we do better going forward when there are the opportunities to go. But it's not great. Like I'm just being really honest. But coming off peak, like off the frothiest market we've had in the longest time, it's all by comparison. You know, same thing we look at interest rates. Like, yes, they're up and dramatically so, but coming off of the cheapest money that's existed in the last four decades. It is relative. I mean, I'm sure that if you were to offer a time machine to a real estate practitioner in 1993 and they could have this year coming up instead of what they had in 1993, we would see a flood of neon wearing 1990s people running into our office to, uh, to take over jobs here. So I think that including your dad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think that relative to previous crashes, I think that this will be soft, not hard. Date back to the 90s as well. You know, back then the saying was, you know, stay alive till 95. And they were saying that in like 1992. You know, we're talking about half a year as our as our slogan, you know. <laughs> Q3, you and me. I don't have an ending for it, but you, you get, you get <laughs> that was my pretty point. good. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, yours truly had a mortgage in 1993. So when the mortgage rates started coming down, I, th- I can't remember where we were at, but I think we were in heaven when it hit 7.6%. I think my wife and I thought, oh my God, we're saving a ton of money. Because at one point in time, we were at 12 earlier than that. So when you're looking at four and a quarter percent Bank of Canada rate, it's still incredibly cheap money. But the world has changed. The economy has changed. Everything is a lot more expensive than it was 30 years ago or 25, 30 years ago. But look, right now, if I had anyone graduating from school, I would tell them to get involved with real estate. This is the optimal time to get involved. Whenever you see a small downturn, and this is not going to be a big downturn. This is going to be six months, 12 months, and we're back at it. Or at least that's my prediction, but I'm not an economist. I would say this is the best time to get involved in this industry. You start young, there's an enormous amount to learn when you're in a recession in real estate. And you don't learn it, it's not easy. Meaning it's easy when you've got a, a market that's running crazy, like it has been over, over for a long period of time. Everybody becomes an expert really fast because you're making money and you're doing transactions and look at what I'm doing. Now do that in a market like this. 
and actually learn what the fundamentals are, learn how to deal with the fundamentals, and it will enhance your career. And I would urge anyone that could be listening to this that's debating whether or not they want to get involved with real estate because of this downturn, now is the time. Now is the absolute time to set the foundation of your career and really dig in and learn. Recessions are the best time. I think it's a great way to end the podcast. Thank you, Peter, for coming on. Great to see you. Good to do this in person. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to Informa and Yardi for setting this up as our, uh, our review of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again, Peter. Thank you. Pleasure. No after show because it basically was a real estate forum after show. Yeah. See you later, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.